you don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com slash WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 20th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Indre, this is our last show before Christmas, and so I thought I would try my hardest to make it seasonally appropriate, and so that's why I made our show about atheists. <laughs> the free thinkers who may celebrate this holiday, yes, they may, atheists, they may celebrate it, they may not. Either way, they will be blamed for being behind the war on Christmas. Of course. Right? And so, when it comes to atheism, I've gotten pretty fascinated by the work of a researcher at the University of British Columbia named Ara Noren Zion. And he specializes in the psychology of religion, but he also publishes a lot of papers on the psychology of atheism because it's sort of like the flip side, a yin and yang kind of thing. And what he shows is the punchline is religion comes pretty naturally to most people. It's pretty basic. It's pretty intuitive. It's like a default. Atheism, a lot less so. But atheism happens and there's something like half a billion atheists on planet Earth. So what makes people reject God? What cognitive factors? What psychological factors? It's a fascinating question. And here's a clip of my interview with Noren Zion where he's explaining why religion is so basic to most people. It seems like religiosity or religious beliefs are encouraged by a number of uh, basic intuitions that we have about the world that, that seem to be built into our brains. This doesn't mean that religion is inevitable or guarantees that we will have religious beliefs, but it does make it more likely that our, the way our brains work will make it more uh, compelling that we have religious intuitions. Well, I have to say my skeptical radar is always peaked when I hear the term built into our brains, but um, I'll admit he's also piqued my interest, so I'm curious to hear what else he has to say. Well, he has to say a lot, and uh, you will especially enjoy the part where he explains how uh, Obamacare in the United States will produce more atheists. So that's pretty exciting. Wow, I'm sure I'm sure someone's going to yeah. pick that up and <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we'll be we'll be we'll be running with that on Twitter. Um, so that'll be our interview for today. But first, Indre, it is Christmas time, and I understand there is something sciency to be said about the part of Christmas that spoiled children like me really care about uh, the presents that they're going to get. So <laughs> tell me, tell me the science of presents. 
Yeah, so it's pretty hard these days to get through the holidays without putting at least some thought into toys. And I have three nephews, all are under the age of five. So I've spent a bit of time on Amazon and in toy stores checking out the latest fads. Now, a lot of parents I hear complain that their kids are addicted to their iPads or other screens, which, you know, wasn't really a problem when I was growing up. Um, And the American Pediatric Association actually recommends against exposing infants under the age of two to such screens, claiming that it limits the interactive time they have with adults, you know, which is so critical for cognitive and other types of development. Um, But, you know, I've also been thinking about my interview with Alison Gopnik a few weeks ago. She's the child psychologist who was suggesting that a lot of the apps these days are actually pretty interactive. They're designed for kids. Um, So I wondered whether there are games or apps out there that have been proven to be beneficial. And it turns out I did come across one study uh, that seems to indicate that playing action-based video games can benefit kids with dyslexia. So what is this like, you know, my, when I play lots of plants versus zombies, this is actually good for me or angry birds. It's very scientific. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, dyslexia has gotten some press this year, of course, also because of Malcolm Gladwell's recent book, um, you know, claiming that dyslexia might be one of these things that if you overcome it, it can lead you to a more successful life. Very controversial book. Um, But this Italian study was showing that 12 hours of action video game playing. So not just any video game playing, you know, the the non-action type playing was not effective, did improve reading skills in kids with dyslexia. Um, and, and these games had nothing to do, there was no, like, there were no words on the screen, or there's no orthographic component to it. It's purely action-based video gaming. Um, and what's really interesting is that these kids that played these 12 hours, not all at once, <laughs> but over the course of a number of sessions, um, they performed better um, on, you know, on these reading assignments than kids who went through more traditional reading treatments. And there's something special about these action games. So the authors of the study actually suggest that what's happening here is that the action video games are improving visual attention. And there's quite a bit of research showing that one of the problems in dyslexia is that people have the, the kids have trouble directing their visual attention, you know. So if you, for example, if you space, if you put more um, space between letters, there it's easier for them to read a particular word. Um, now, I want to emphasize that these kids start out impaired. So they have a problem, right? They have dyslexia. They're not, they're, they're showing an impairment in reading ability. So it's not clear whether healthy kids would benefit or even maybe be harmed by too much video game playing, you know, in other domains. But at least for these kids, it seems that there is something about these games that even only 12 hours of training can improve their attention to the point where we can see results, just kind of amazing. Well, it's also bound to be dare I say, controversial to be suggesting this, that okay, it's okay to have uh, kids. I mean, people are going to misunderstand this and they're going to think, oh, you're saying play more games. Uh, and I'm sure that, I don't know if that's already happened. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm sure of it. And that's kind of why I'm stressing, you know, it, these are these are kids with an issue and this is a, an issue specific to visual attention. And these are games that are specifically geared towards improving visual attention. So, you know, it's 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 that's the one thing about any kind of um, br- gaming to, intru- to improve any kind of brain function. You know, the big issue is transfer, right? Whether, whether you're just going to get better at the game that you're playing, you know, Tetris or what have you, um, or is it actually going to show improvements in other cognitive domains um, that are relevant to your life. This is a big issue, especially in, you know, these brain training games where people want to stave off aging. Um, And so that's always what we should really look at is, is to what extent is there transfer and, you know, what specifically are these games training? 
Okay, meantime, next time somebody tells me stop killing all those zombies and do something constructive, I'm going to say that I'm, uh, I'm improving my brain. So. Only if you're dyslexic. So I have another scientific Christmas story for you. Did you know, and you will be interested as a Canadian, that Santa may soon be one of your own? Well, duh. He's super nice and he wears red and white. I mean, of course he's Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> well, he will be Canadian at any rate if Canada succeeds. Uh, well, if Canada succeeds in a scientific ploy to lay claim to the North Pole. Right? This has been in the news recently. The foreign minister of Canada, John Baird, announced that Canada will make a claim to the North Pole. And this is, of course, because it is highly mineral rich and highly carbon rich oil and gas. You know, it's an oil and gas dream. Uh, and it is being rapidly and conveniently de-iced for all the people who want to go in and get all the goodies. Um, but for Canada to make this claim, it has to make this complicated scientific argument. Basically, it has to send out its scientists and they need to be able to prove, quote, prove that their continental shelf, Canada's continental shelf, which is basically the land beneath the ocean surface, but not very deep, sort of slopes out before you get the real deep ocean. Um, it's an extension of the continent. They need to claim that this extends really far, right? Because legally, every country gets 200 miles from their coastline. That's the legal definition. Canada has to go out and do science to say, no, our continental shelf goes further, so give us this land. So what do you make of this? Are you like, rah, rah, you know, Santa and his elves are ours. We've got, you know, what? captured them. <laughs> well, first... Chris, I need to tell you that that Santa is a fictional character, um, and despite what the right, pundits... this was learned this week actually by by a lot of commentators. Exactly, yeah. You know, despite Fox News's claim that you know he is yeah. he is such and such, uh, the truth is, is he can be anything you want him to be. So if you want him to be Canadian, good for you. <laughs> but but this now is we're true. talking. This clears yeah, up a lot. We're talking about the North Pole, which of course, is Canadian. <laughs> it's a Canadian. We always claim the North Pole. But yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to, to, to say, okay, so is coastline, if coastline is underwater, is it still coastline? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they solve this problem. But you know, if, uh, you might have also, if you've been following the news in Canada recently, there's been a huge controversy about how the government has interacted with its scientists. Essentially, there have been claims that they've been muzzling their scientists and preventing them from publishing, you know, research that was funded by the government and so on. So it's interesting now that all of a sudden they're they're looking at their scientists to help them with this, you know, policy decision or political legal issue. Oh, yeah. No, they love the scientists. They love the scientists who say that their territory extends all the way, you know, into the other hemisphere. I mean, you know, yeah, that's that those scientists are great. There's actually an author uh, in in Canada who's written a book uh, whose title is I'm not going to get it quite right, but it's The War on Science. As, and as an author of a book that is uh, almost 10 years old now with a very similar title, I, I wish him uh, the best of luck. He's pointing out that this is going on in Canada right now. And so you, you know the story. Um, but, but they love the science of oil and gas. Absolutely. I mean, well, yeah, because it translates into dollars. So yeah, here's, here's a great example of, of science you know, in, in, involved in policy and, and political leanings, which is exactly what our show is about. And meanwhile, it's going to be getting very, very crowded up there at the top of the world. <laughs> a lot of people getting very, very interested uh, as the ice vanishes. So this is going to be this is going to be in some ways the story 
of the next couple of decades. Yeah, it'll be interesting to to, to follow it. Um, but also, to, it makes me wonder too, to what extent, you know, g- global warming and the melting of the ice caps, how that's going to affect, you know, what what the responsibilities are for whatever government is claiming um, that 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 is their territory, right? I mean, if if it's starting to affect other. Um, you know, other issues, there might be a time when governments actually want to disown parts of the world that are really affected by global warming. Oh, I don't know. I think they really want to own right now. We'll have to we'll have to see. I mean, you know, one hopes that it isn't just plunder. Uh, One hopes that there actually are, you know, responsible stewardship of the resources and uh, the living things. Um, But that this this could be many shows on this topic. Absolutely. Okay, with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Ara Nornzayan. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. Hey, happy holidays. In case you forgot to buy us a present, here's what you can do instead. When you're hanging out with friends or family this holiday season, make it a point to tell them about one particularly interesting thing you learn while listening to Inquiring Minds. Not only will you be helping us grow our audience, but you'll also probably look really smart doing it. Sincerely, to everyone that listens to this show, thank you all so much, and have a great holiday. Ara Noren-Zayan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. It's good to, to be here. It's great to have you to talk about a really fascinating subject, one that I love. So I wanted to get you on to talk about what we're learning in your field, let's call it the psychology of religion, about atheists. But to do that, I think we need to start out by understanding what you've learned about why people are religious, because the upshot of that research is that religion seems to come pretty naturally to people because of a variety of psychological traits. So maybe just start us off by explaining why people tend to be religious. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Uh, over the last decade, a and a half, I think we've done quite a bit of progress in, in uh, understanding better what are the natural uh, Causes or what, how do you understand religion in a, from the perspective of natural uh, uh, processes? How our brain works? How we process information about the world? How do we uh, connect with others in, in in social groups? And we found that uh, a number of interesting things. So one is that it seems like religiosity or religious beliefs are encouraged by a number of uh, basic intuitions that we have about the world that that seem to be built into our brains. This doesn't mean that religion is inevitable or guarantees that we will have religious beliefs, but it does make it more likely that our the way our brains work will make it more uh, compelling that we have religious intuitions. There are also additional things that we can consider, we can talk about uh, that are really important. So, for example, our capacity for cultural learning is a very important part of understanding how religion spreads and and stabilizes in societies. Um, there are other motivational factors, so conditions of insecurity or threat seem to also make religion more compelling, uh, and there are a number of other factors that are also important. Well, let's unpack one or two of the cognitive ones. One that you focus a lot of your research on is mentalizing, and I think that's going to be really important in the conversation, so maybe if you can explain that one uh, in particular. Yeah, mentalizing seems to be really important, uh, in particular for understanding how people mentally represent gods or spirits or any other supernatural agents, ancestor spirits, uh, angels, ghosts, devils, including God. Um, Here, this is the idea that uh, we have a basic capacity 
a basic social cognitive capacity to infer and read the minds of other people. That's how we. That's why we are social beings, and so that's how we really uh, can live in societies where uh, social connection is so important. And uh, the same capacity that help us understand other people's minds, their beliefs, their desires, their wishes, their worries, seem to also be implicated in in the way that we we also mentally represent other uh, or supernatural beings. So when people pray, for example, to God, uh, they are trying to understand, for example, God what, what God wants from them, what God wishes, what God forbids. They're trying to express their own feelings or or, uh, or experiences to God. So when people enter into a relationship with a, with a supernatural agent, they are basically engaging their mentalizing tendencies. So when they say, you know, this concept of a personal God, I mean, it really is a personal God. It's like another person to them. Yeah, and you're right. This is important to emphasize that it's about this is a, this is really important for understanding how people relate to personal gods. Uh, this is not about the abstract impersonal god, which doesn't seem to be that important in the minds of devout believers. So devout believers seem to be much more compelled to think about and and uh, worship personal gods, and that this capacity is really important for that. So, as I understand it, one upshot of all this research is that not that every not that everyone has to be religious but that there's something pretty automatic natural and you would use the word i think intuitive so it comes easily and other things come hard is that is that right yeah i think from uh, overall you could say that religion and atheism are not an unequal playing field right so uh, atheism is definitely possible. In fact, we see, and we can talk about this in a little bit, about what what are the conditions that give rise to atheism. But the starting point of our, our understanding is that religion seems to be have a head start over atheism. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. So we just talked about mentalizing, which makes it really intuitive for people to mentally represent gods in the way that we mentally represent other minds of other people. So then, yeah, then the question is, why are there atheists? Um, because I, I was reading your papers, and uh, I, in there I got an estimate, uh, half a billion of them the world over, that would make them the fourth largest religious group, except that would be hugely ironic, so we don't do it. So why do they also exist? Uh, yeah, so 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 just to be clear, there are many other important uh, considerations, uh, other intuitive uh, factors that seem to uh, be implicated in religious belief. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that the cognitive factors are not the only reasons why we have religion. There are additional important things to consider. So, for example, people don't just worship any gods. They worship the gods that are um, supported, culturally supported in their own groups, right? So it's an interesting fact that if you happen to have been born and raised in the Bible Belt of the United States, there's the chances are extremely high that you're going to worship the Abrahamic God, you're going to believe in Jesus, not Vishnu or Allah, right? So th these are important considerations also to think about. Um, why? How do we get atheism uh, out of, <laughs> out, given that given that I just told you? So I, this is one of the first puzzles, I think, about, about atheism or secularization. There's a second puzzle, by the way. Let me put it on the table. Um, so the first puzzle is, given that religion seems to be to some extent, natural and encouraged by uh, mental dispositions. How do we get atheism? The second puzzle is, historically, when people abandoned religion, 
they gravitated to another religion. So people have been, you know, switching religions all the time throughout history. Religions come and go. Some religions don't make it. They live and die. Other religions spread at the expense of other religions, competing religions. And uh, when people, uh, for whatever reason, abandoned or lost their religion, they gravitated to a different religion. But in the last couple of hundred years, we're seeing something really interesting and novel, I think, which is that entire societies seem to say to themselves, so to speak, metaphorically, not, not only do we want to abandon religion, we don't want another religion, we just want to put a distance between us and religion. And that's interesting, and that's a puzzle. Mm-hmm. The Scandinavian countries, for instance. For example, Scandinavian countries, um, Norway, um, Denmark, Sweden, even Netherlands, to some extent France and the UK. Um, and of course, there are other examples too. The Czech Republic is one of the least religious societies on earth. Um, Japan is not that religious. China, of course, is a good example of that. So there are many of uh, uh, these seems like there's some interesting social transition going on in some parts of the world where societies are finding different ways to figure out life solutions without religion. Well, let's talk about the cognitive side of atheism. I mean, is it just the flip side of the cognitive side of being religious? In other words, you you know, if the religion means the volume is turned up around eight, you know, you turn the volume down to like two and you're an atheist on some trade. Is that basically how it works? That's part of the explanation. So, uh, the same mechanisms that, that make or encourage religious belief, uh, if you dial them down, so to speak, you get less religious belief. That's one way you can get um, religious disbelief. So less mentalizing. Less people who are, for whom mentalizing is less intuitive. A good example of that is people who are high on the autistic spectrum are going to be less likely to find religion compelling. And in some research we've done, we found this connection. So the higher people score on the autistic spectrum, the less likely they uh, they find religious beliefs uh, intuitive. And if you don't find something very intuitive, you're not going to believe in it as much. So that's one way you can get, uh, this is one uh, channel, so to speak, that you can get atheism. But there's another one that's equally important, which is that you could have these intuitions, full-blown intuitions, but if you revise them or uh, block them, uh, then you're also going to have less religious belief. So uh, we've done some research on this where we find that when we encourage people to think more analytically, and we know from a lot of literature in psychology that analytic thinking uh, overrides intuitive processes. So this is not unique to religion. Any kind of uh, intuition can be uh, blocked or overridden by analytic thinking. So when we encourage people to think analytically, they were less likely to be religious. So it's really true, the way atheists describe themselves, is that they like they actually like to think. That's a, that's a trait of atheists, so to speak. To some extent. I, I, that's true, although I, what I would emphasize is that this is only one explanation of, of several explanations. So it's not the only reason why you get atheism. I think that, that study is fascinating, though, and this one, if I remember was in science and got a lot of media attention last year. And what you what you were doing was you were finding that, well, one of the experiments was really fascinating. You showed people, uh, if I remember correctly, pictures of this sculpture. I think it's Rodin, the thinker, where he's thinking. And that actually experimentally decreased religious belief by putting people in a thinking mindset. Correct. Yeah, this was work with Will Gervais. Um, 
And in one of the studies, we had several studies, one of them, uh, we randomly assigned our participants to um, to look at pictures of the Rodin's thinker, which is an emblematic thinking pose. In the control group, we randomly assigned people to look at the uh, Discobolus of Myron, which in many ways is a similar sculpture, but it doesn't have a thinking pose. And what we found was uh, exposure to the thinking pose reduced um, reduced religious belief, belief in God. We had other evidence also where anything we did when that encouraged more analytic processing uh, seemed to have led to a dip in religious belief. I want to emphasize here that this is not, uh, it's not that we had people think about why God doesn't exist or it's nothing like that at all. We just had people think analytically as opposed to intuitively. So this was nothing to do with religion. So the way people were encouraged to think analytically was not about thinking of arguments for why God exists or doesn't exist. It was just simply processing information in a more piecemeal and analytic way that then had effects on religious beliefs. So I think there's a couple potentially difficult questions or uncomfortable questions around this around this that I want to just go at, and I just want to see what your take on them would be. One is that I mean, if atheism is less common, I'm sure that the Christian right would, or at least some in the Christian right, would love to be able to say that there's, there's something abnormal or deviant uh, about being an atheist, since after all, most people are in their brains normally uh, incline them towards being religious. What would you say about that? There are some, some who would take this evidence to mean that. I, 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 have, uh, I, I have questions about that integration, because there are a lot of things that we do that are um, that depart from intuitive thinking that we consider really important. I mean, whenever, whenever people are solving abstract math, math puzzles, these are not intuitive, right? That, so I don't see why, why would we call it abnormal or deviant. Literacy is, in, by this definition, abnormal and deviant because nothing in the way our natural brain processes work uh, produce literacy. Literacy is a cultural invention that was rare and deviant at one point, and now it's spreading in the world so much so that the vast, uh, in many societies, the vast majority of people are literate, right? So just because something is unusual doesn't mean it's abnormal or wrong or bad. I mean, wearing glasses, wearing contact lenses or glasses is abnormal by this definition, right? So I, I, don't, I don't buy this argument, no. It, it, I don't think it has that much com- compelling uh, force to it. But atheists are also more male, and this relates to the mentalizing aspect of things. Males mentalize less, so um, females mentalize more. So you also have this sort of gender divide. Yeah, uh, and uh, we were in, in, when we were doing that work, we were also uh, puzzling over this interesting finding that has been out there for decades. Uh, and mainly this has been done uh, work by sociologists, which seems to show that uh, whenever you find the gender difference in religious belief, it's it's always uh, women are more religious than men, men are less religious than women. You find that uh, men are overrepresented among atheists. So, uh, and there have been various explanations proposed for this. But what we tried to look at and we found, found support for this is, is maybe without the same reason why we find a connection between mentalizing and belief could explain this connection between gender and religious belief. And so we did find that, um, at least statistically, we find that men are less likely to be believers than women. We also find that men are not as advanced in mentalizing on average than women. 
these are average effects. Of course, there are all kinds of variability within in men and women on this, but there's an average difference, and we found that the mentalizing gap explained the the gap in religiosity. Got it. So we've covered. Uh, you have this great paper where you give four four causes of atheism, and I think we you might say we've covered two. We've covered uh, what you called mind blind atheism, which is just not mentalizing, uh, and and then you know there's also this cognitively laborious atheism where you're thinking extensively, you're not trusting your intuitions, you're interrogating them, uh, you have an analytic processing style, that's a pathway to atheism. But then you talk about uh, two other pathways that are, I guess, a little more social. Yeah. So, yeah. I think, yeah, and, and here I, maybe it's a good t- t- time to say that, you know, I think the interesting and overarching story here is that there are different flavors of atheism. Uh, it's not that there is, you know, people. Sometimes people think of atheism as one homogenous group, but what we're finding is that there are interesting, chan- different channels that that lead to disbelief, and so we need to understand that. So we just talked about two of those. Uh, the other two are are uh, come from different sources. One, as I alluded in the beginning, is uh, is the is this idea that. Whenever we, whenever we find that there are life conditions that that are uh, threatening to people, to people's well-being, either at the individual level for individual lives or at the societal level, so anything that makes life insecure, that threatens people's well-being and existence, uh, seems to encourage more religious people flock to religion more in these kinds of conditions. So. From a social perspective, if you look at societies that are more existentially insecure, to use a term that has been used by some sociologists, so high infant mortality, short lifespans, threats of war, natural disasters, no access to social safety nets. So if you get sick, can you get treatment? If you um, if you are uh, if you're unemployed, do you have some kind of insurance? Societies that that can't, don't secure or are unable to secure the security of their, of their citizens, these are places where you see a lot of religion. And conversely, to come back to atheism, you see a lot of atheism in places where people live in much more secure conditions. So that's the third pathway. I'm tempted to ask whether uh, the passage of Obamacare in the United States will therefore create more atheism. But again, this is the, I mean, we, we don't have the social safety nets that the Scandinavian countries do have. And of course, I mean, that seems to be where the story, this story really is borne out is in these countries that, um, I mean, pejoratively, people would call them having really big welfare states. I mean, I think the, um, the Scandinavian societies, the reason why they're overwhelmingly atheist is because they have a convergence of many of these channels that lead to atheism. So essentially secure, high access to education and scientific literacy, which encourages more analytic thinking. And the, my fourth uh, channel that I was going to talk about is, is uh, lack of cultural displays of public displays of religion, which also seems to be the case in Scandinavian societies, which you don't find in the, in the United States. So yeah, I think that Obamacare, if it passes and if it succeeds in its aims, in the long run, uh, should lead to decline of religiosity within a, within a generation or two. Well, don't tell anybody. But we should we should keep that. <laughs> I'll give one more one more reason uh, to to not want it to succeed. Uh, so it it has already passed, but of course there's continuing resistance to it. Yeah, I agree. And and this uh, to me, my mind explains, uh, or what is one of the best explanations for why 
the United States is such an outlier in religion, right? Why Americans are so religious uh, relative to other advanced industrialized democracies, I think one key explanation is uh, there's much more existential insecurity in the United States. There's not as much social safety nets, uh, there's poverty levels that are high, and uh, there's uh, very large uh, inequality levels in the economic and social inequality levels compared to relatively uh, compared to peer countries like Canada or or Northern European countries. So is this saying that there's actually some truth to the old opiate of the masses description of religion that it actually you know serves to kind of dull uh, your consciousness of how unfair the society you live in is? Well, the opiate of the masses, the the Marxian explanation of religion, I, I I don't really buy it because from Marx's point of view, religion is something that people in power use to manipulate the masses. I don't think that's true. I think that religion is already compelling and comforting for the masses to begin with. Otherwise, it, 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 it begs the explanation why religion is the opiate of the masses and not something else, some other ideology. So... Uh, I think there's a grain of truth in that in that statement, but I think that the mechanism that I'm proposing is different than what Marx taught. But the mechanism is some kind of fear. Well, when life is is insecure and unstable, it makes sense that you you seek comfort and solace in uh, gods who give you a hope for the future, for immortality, that there's something better after you die, that this is not the end. But when life is good, you don't need that as much. So I think that's 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 where the comfort comes comes. It's, it's not simply it's not just that uh, people in power are simply manipulating the masses, and uh, which that happens of course as well. But to, for that to happen, you need additional factors in place for those in power to use religion to maintain hierarchies. Uh, well, I mean, I think just to, to underscore that it isn't just inequality that creates this existential angst. It's also natural disasters. And one of the studies that I've come across, and I know you discuss, shows that shows people becoming more religious in the wake of an earthquake in New Zealand. Yes, there was this uh, lovely study by Chris Sibley and uh, Joseph Bulbuya out, out from New Zealand, where they, they were um, tracking religiosity levels in New Zealand over time. And then this massive earthquake happened in Christchurch which gave, gave them the opportunity to see what happens right after an earthquake. Would, would, would this lead to increase of religiosity, decrease of religiosity, or no difference? So they did measure religiosity after, and what they found was inconsistent with this, with this idea of existential insecurity making uh, religion more compelling. They found that uh, there was a spike in religious belief right after the earthquake, but only in the region, the Christchurch region, where people were directly affected by the earthquake. So in other parts of New Zealand where the earthquake did not have an impact, actually religiosity declined over time, which is the general secularization phenomenon that we see in many, many industrialized countries. So for those people who were, who were most, most affected by, by this disaster, you get more religiosity. You've also researched why people don't like atheists. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously the religious are the majority in uh, many, if not m- most places, especially America, but I mean, in a country like Indonesia, it gets much more totalitarian and oppressive towards atheists. And so there's, you know, either tacit or outright persecution of them. So forget the war on Christmas, it's the war on atheists. W- what does your research say about why this occurs? 
Yeah, so this is um, this is something that also have, we've been uh, we've been looking at with uh, along with Will Gervais and Azim Sharif uh, leading this work, and uh, we've been puzzled about uh, about distrust and or dislike of atheists because if you think about it, atheists are not that numerous in religious societies where this prejudice is most rampant. They are not that coherent. It's not a coherent group of people. You know, like. Ricky Gervais joked once that atheism is a belief system, like not skiing is a hobby. So most atheists, most non-believers, they, they don't, they're not ideologically opposed to religion. They just don't care about religion. They just lack a belief. They just lack some metaphysical belief. So the question is, why wouldn't religious people simply ignore atheists? Why would they feel threatened by them? And what we've been finding, looking in, into this question and digging a little bit deeper than the sociological surveys, is that we found that really the the intuition behind this prejudice against atheists is, is a moral distrust. So from the perspective of believers, atheists are, are a moral wild card. They feel like you can't tell that an atheist will be a cooperator or a, someone who's not going to cheat because why would someone be nice is the intuition if they don't think that they are under some kind of supernatural monitoring by a watchful God. So that's, in essence, what we find is the uh, key driver of distrust of atheists. But on our last, you know, our last show, we had Joshua Green uh, from Harvard does research on morality. And one of the things in his new book, uh, we made uh, somewhat uh, of a large amount of hay over in our article about it in particular is this finding that, you know, some societies are more and less cooperative, and what he's got is that Copenhagen is like the most cooperative society, and that's probably not a highly religious society. Um, and they've done experiments showing that they're very cooperative there. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, in, of, in my opening chapter about atheism and secularization in my book starts with Denmark. I've been to uh, Denmark, and I was I was really fascinated by exactly that. That this is one of the most cooperative societies on earth, and they're doing it completely without religion. So, so what happened? And so, I think that there's an interesting story here, which is that as societies develop strong secular institutions, rule of law, that increases the incentive for cooperative behavior with uh, without religion, and trust levels are high, as it is in Denmark then you don't need religion anymore. So so the way I, I would put it is that these societies climb the ladder of religion and then kick it away. And there's, a, there's quite a bit of research that shows that uh, societies that create strong rule of law, also you find in the same societies that religion declines considerably in these societies. We even find this experimentally. So uh, work by Aaron Kay, psychologist at Duke, and his colleagues show that God and government are interchangeable, like literally in people's minds. So the more you think about God being uh, important, you, the less you think government is important, and vice versa. That would also explain a great a great deal about politics. But I guess the upshot of this is that uh, the religious, they distrust atheists, they think they have their reasons, their reasons are moral, but you're saying that the data, I mean, religion does seem to promote certain kinds of um, group behavior, but you're saying the data suggests that you don't definitely don't need it for that. Yeah, I don't think religion is essential or unique in producing cooperative uh, behavior in societies. You, you can develop alternatives for it, and in fact, some societies have. But my point is that historically, uh, secular institutions were uh, have been very recent, especially effective secular institutions that actually work. So when these institutions were absent, 
religion was not the only game in town, and which is still true in most of the developing world. And I, I want to come back to the distress of atheism here. So we have done research following up on these ideas, and we found that in societies that have strong rule of law, like in Scandinavian societies, in North America, U.S. is an odd exception once again, but in general, uh, when you have strong rule of law, you have less distrust of atheists by religious people. So if you take two religious individuals, equally religious, the person who lives and grows up in a society that has strong rule of law will have much less distrust of atheists than the person who, who uh, grows up in a weak rule of law. Well, I think all of this is is highly uh, revealing, and uh, it's interesting that I mean the the atheist community certainly wants to make uh, the world more atheistic. That's goal, or at least more secular. Uh, I I don't I don't know how much they discuss this research, but I guess I would ask you what is the implication for them? I mean, is there a blueprint in your research for how you make the world more secular? What would it be? <laughs> Do I have a recipe for how you make societies more more uh, less religious? Yeah. I suppose. I mean, you, I, I also have a recipe for how you make people religious, right? So that's really the pro- project we're trying to understand uh, the underlying uh, pathways or the causes that lead to religiosity. But the same pathways, if they are altered, uh, they lead to less religiosity. So I think that this information is available, and and it's not magic. I think it's pretty. I think we're coming to a reasonably good understanding of how how these pathways work. So anyone can look at this evidence and then think for themselves of what what we should be doing. So this is not about, you know, this is not a this is a scientific project of understanding the way things are. So I leave it to others, to philosophers or to um, who want to think about the implications of how should we do things. Or podcast hosts, I'll be willing to do it. <laughs> No, it sounds like atheists should be standing up for strong social safety nets is what it sounds like to me. Um, but I'll yeah, leave it, I mean, yeah. you know, I think sometimes in the atheist community, the people spend too much time arguing, right? They think that by presenting evidence for why atheism is a more reasonable position than believing, that seems that they think that that's, that's going to change minds, but that hardly ever changes minds. So there are, that's not how our psychology works. Yeah, you know, strong safety nets is going to be a much more powerful incentive in the in the long run to uh, that will lead to decline of religion. And in fact, sociologists have found this over historical time. What you find is that as inequality declines in a society, as social safety nets increase in society, you get you get less and less religion in these societies. Wow. Well, apparently this show will not be taken well by all those libertarian atheists out there, but uh, we're sorry. Those are, such is the research. Um, well, uh, I'm just I'm just reporting what I'm finding. So the the rest, I think, you know, we can discuss what we should be doing, but that's a different issue. Um, well, well, listen, it's been it's been fascinating, uh, Era Noren Zion, and I want to thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. Well, he certainly brings up a few points that are going to keep me thinking for a while. You know, the idea that religion is about mentalizing the intentions of a god or some other being. You know, that's re- I find that really interesting. Uh, I never really thought about it that way as, as a kind of a social thing between you and this other um, other being, not just between you and your community of, of other religious people. But I'm not sure that his explanation of the gender gap in atheism is really that compelling to me. I mean, I, I see where he's coming from, but... 
You know, I also think there's a big social stigma associated with being an atheist, especially in the U.S., um, that includes the stereotypes of being cold and unempathic and unemotional. You know, these traits are often thought to be undesirable in women. So it might just be that women are just as cold and unemotional, but we put on, on a good show to please society's expectations. And, you know, calling ourselves atheists certainly would not be to that, you know, to that end. He probably actually, you know, I'm just trying to put myself in his head. I think he'd probably want to go with you down that road a significant way. I mean, I, I think that throughout the interview, he's trying to say that, you know, this is not just nature. There's always a lot of cultural factors. And so I don't I don't even think he would deny that. I mean, the gender gap is pretty real uh, and pretty obvious. It just shows up again and again, uh, you know, the exact the exact causes. I think they could be multiple. Yeah. And how he shows the correlation with mentalizing. I mean, that 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 was, that was some compelling information. Um, but then there's also this safety net thing, which I thought was really interesting about how the US, you know, might be more religious as a population than say a place like Canada or some more European socialist countries, because of the inequality between the rich and the poor. It's, it's an interesting idea. Um, and I, I always thought it might have more to do with social cohesion. So, you know, in Canada, we, we say, oh, Canada is a mosaic, we, we celebrate diversity, but the US is a melting pot where you have to assimilate. Um, and so it made me wonder whether religious diversity, which includes atheism, might be more tolerated in a mosaic-based society. But if you're poor, I can imagine how, you know, comforting religion would be, you know, to you with the whole meek shall inherit the earth and, and such. Well, I think the I think the bottom line is that we're finding all these factors that seem to tip people one way or the other, and it really it really does turn out to be a complex social and psychological phenomenon, religiosity. Uh, and uh, you know, the interesting thing is that he he sees a world, I think, in which atheism, you know, it wasn't possible, you know, <laughs> even like a couple hundred years ago, really, it wasn't tenable. And now I think the world is changing it's enough that if his explanations are right, it actually can grow uh, significantly more than it already has. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll be definitely be interesting to see 20 years from now what the holiday season looks like, because it, it does seem to change, you know, it, it becomes... Oh, no, you're going back to the war on Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> But Santa okay, so is still I think fictional. that's probably it. <laughs> right, right. You know, our secret weapon. Um, so that's it for another episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andre Viscontis. Happy holidays, everyone. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.